0: Good morning again. Do keep your Bibles open, please. Esther chapter 2. Um, let me lead us in prayer as we try and work out what's going on in Esther 2. Lord, thank and praise you that you are indeed a faithful God. Thank you that you're a God who provides just what his people need in all kinds of ways. Thank you that while we were still far off, you provided the Lord Jesus. Thank you that you provide for us day by day. You want a God who leaves us alone, but you speak to us, you equip us. And it's astonishing, but you use people like us. Thank you for Esther chapter 2. Thank you that even though we won't spot your name, you are at work. Soften our hearts, we pray. Speak to us for your glory. Amen. Now you may not know this, but in, a, in the Jewish liturgical year, two of the key annual festivals sit back to back, one after the other. The first one, perhaps you are aware because we've just had Easter recently, is the Passover. I'm told it's, it's calm, it's serious opportunity for meditation. Each year to slow down, to remember the deliverance of God's people from Egypt, reenacting that final meal together with lamb and herbs and bread, little details dripping with meaning, with poignancy. We touched on it last week actually, it's quite an important story when it comes to what's going on in Esther. Do you remember, the Lord promises at a man called Abraham that through him, the Lord would bless the world. He would give him an enormous family. He will be great. He'll give him a place to live, a, a place of rest. And God is faithful to his promises. The numbers grow, but they find themselves in the wrong place. They're, they're stuck in Egypt. And so they cry out to God for help. And he hears and he remembers and he rescues his people. So every year, the Passover. We're forgetful people. The Lord gives us ways to remember. They reenact with this meal God's dramatic, awesome, powerful rescue from Egypt. But the one just before the Passover, I guess, is a little less well known. The second liturgical festival. Just flick over with me to chapter 9, and a bit of a spoiler for you. Sorry to, to ruin the end. But 9, verse 28. Here is a second festival. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation, by every family, and in every province, and in every city. And these days of Purim should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews. Nor should the memory of these days die out among their descendants. Purim is another very important festival about deliverance. But God rescuing his people from Persia. And it's a time of rejoicing and noise and happiness. Both festivals, Passover, Purim, about deliverance, acting in a sense as bookends. The Passover, the start of God's people, the, the Purim at the end of God's people, the end of the Old Covenant. Passover, they receive the promised land, they're on their way there. Big, powerful, mighty acts from God, Purim, quiet. God at work in the background, behind the scenes, through ordinary, everyday life. God in both senses, both times, but in very different ways. That's something of the context for Esther, if you remember. God rescuing his people from Egypt, in the land, but in the land, do you remember it's all gone wrong? There'll be a quiz afterwards, but do you remember that the The land was split under Solomon to the north and the south. The north get removed by Assyria and never come back. The south get removed by Babylon 135 years later. Some of them return when the Persians come to power, but some of them are still in exile. Some choose to stay in Persia. People like Mordecai and Esther, they stay put. They're there for decades. They're there for centuries. They've not returned back to the land that God gave his people. In a sense, the exile is finished, but they choose not to return. And what was Persia like? Well, we saw it last time. It's like the kingdom of this world. There is King Xerxes, looking powerful, he's glorious, he's a peacock, displaying his wealth with audacious parties and beautiful gardens and furniture and food and pomp and ceremony, and it looks amazing these little laws to try and control people as to what they do to exercise this power. He treats his wife like an object. Do you remember when we said the contrast to King Jesus? who pours himself out for his bride. Xerxes wants to treat her like an object. And the story ended, if you were here or you've been able to catch up online, with an angry king And a job opportunity. His queen has been removed. She's gone. Vashti wouldn't come and entertain his drunken mates. And that's where we find ourselves this morning. How do you fill a job vacancy for the queen of Persia? What kind of a CV would you have? Well, in one to four, surprise, surprise again, we have the king's advisors calling the shots, perhaps foolishly advising Xerxes what to do where to find someone to replace Vashti. Let me read them again. Later, when his fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he decreed about her, and then the king's personal attendants proposed, well, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Heggai the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. And let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young women, woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. It's an interesting proposal, isn't it? Just flick back a page to 501, if you've got a church Bible, and look at verse 19. The plan was initially mooted last week. and They said, let the king give her position to someone else who is better than she. It's striking now because that word better seems to have been defined in terms of beauty. Solely in terms of beauty rather than character. Looking for a someone, for a new queen who's, who is physically attractive. Who is a stunner. Even more attractive than Vashti. Whereas you wonder in 119 whether better might have been, at least for Xerxes, someone who's willing to do as she's told. Vashti wasn't removed because she wasn't beautiful. She was removed because she wouldn't do as the king wanted her to do and she made him look stupid in front of his mates, in front of the whole kingdom. Perhaps he did that himself. I wonder if this beauty pageant is short-sighted. It gives us again just a glimpse into... What Xerxes is like, what this kingdom is like I think we're meant to roll our eyes it's a superficial beauty pageant. How's that gonna pick the right kind of queen for you? The only criteria thereafter is if she's a woman, she's young, she's unmarried, and she's an absolute stunner. He wants another trophy bride. For all that matters. Did you spot us? Well, in a sense, it's not even a competition you have to enter. You you are entered. You are part of the empire. You will serve if you can serve. You don't have a choice. In reality, the winner's life may have been much better. There may have been real blessing. She wouldn't have wanted for nothing. She would live in splendour. She could cope with just being taken out when she was to be played with. But there was pampering and provision and plenty. This would be a step up. This would be significant. And So the plan is 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia, remember? And they will find the best looking young women from that area. And then the contestants, they're going to be looked after by Hegai. seems to have an affinity with making women look beautiful. Laboratoire Garnier Guru or something like that, I expect. And then the king will choose from these, these women whom he prefers. That's the plan. That's the proposal. But then the unexpected thing is that two nobodies completely from left field come and step into the limelight. 5 to 11, we see the players. Imagine, imagine it is the festival of Purim that Esther is being read out, as it would be annually, and we know who these people are. We are in on the secret. We know why they matter. Here come Mordecai and Esther. Verse 5, Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai son of Jer, the son of Shimai the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiachin, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadessa, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. So, so right under Xerxes' nose in Susa, you have this this couple, these these Jewish folk. Mordecai and his cousin, younger cousin Esther. And what do we learn of them? What do we learn of Mordecai firstly? Well, he, you can see it's traced back. He comes from good Jewish stock. He comes from the line of Benjamin. And it seems then that the exile would be all he ever knew. I'm told that 2 verse 6 is clearer in the original Hebrew, but it goes something like this. He had been exiled from Jerusalem with the exiles who had been exiled with Jehoiachin, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar had exiled. His family had been exiled for a 100 years. He was second, possibly third generation of exiles. Exile defined his existence, his identity. He would have known nothing other than life under the Persian Empire, nothing other than life... At home, but away from home. A man of contrast, he's a resident of Susa. He has a Persian postcode, but his name is Mordecai, which is the Hebrew form of a Babylonian name, which probably comes from a Babylonian god, Marduk. Not to say he worshipped this god, but his name is a derivative from this god, it seems. And yet with a very clear Jewish bloodline, you can trace him right back to King Saul. He comes with kudos, he comes from important stock, but he's a real man of contrasts and ambiguity. Just like it seems his, his orphan cousin. Hebrew name Hadessa means myrtle, but she had a Persian name, Esther, which means star. Again, there are possible allusions to a Persian god. And the story is building. Because Esther, we're told, is beautiful which means when women from all over Persia are being gathered then there is Esther among those gathered uh, a place at the at the heart of the harem for the beauty eunuch Hegai and so her intensive treatment begins And and it is a superficial game isn't it it's a game of externals it's just like last week with the party It's all about what you see, all about the outside, a huge focus on what things look like. But Esther learns to play the game, and she plays it very well, so that, verse 9, she pleased him and won his favour. Immediately he provided her with her beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. She is a part of the empire. She conforms, she fits in and so she thrives. This might raise questions for us. Perhaps, where do we draw lines in life? When is assimilation too much? What does it mean to conform? To conform? It's a question we're going to explore as the book unfolds. We'll think about it more in a bit. But for now, just notice that Esther did as she was told. She she played the empire's game and she was happy to. But the empire don't actually know everything about her yet. Mordecai has advised her to keep quiet and so, verse 10, she's not revealed her nationality, family background. But Mordecai is there keeping a watch checking. Verse 11. So what happens with this eunuch? Well, it's extraordinary. Before a young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes, verse 12, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments. Six months with oil of myrrh, six months with perfume and cosmetics, and This is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given to her to take with her from the the harem to the king's palace and in the evening she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem to the care of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She wouldn't return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. When the turn came for Esther to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favour of everyone who saw her. A treat in our culture is a spa day. She gets a spa year. Twelve months of solid beauty treatment. Six months with myrrh. Six months with perfume. And a year of decent food. It's interesting, isn't it, that? I think on the way past it, in our mind we think... Good food in our cultural mindset, we probably think healthy, healthy eating. It's low fat, it's low sugar, lots of fruit, lots of vitamins, lots of fluids. But it's interesting, if you read the commentaries, actually, that they think much more likely she's putting on weight. Our Western culture is unusual, globally and historically, with its obsession about being thin. Weight was and is, in many parts of the world, seen as a sign of beauty and a sign of blessing. And so Esther is growing in beauty as she's putting on weight. Perhaps unsurprisingly, she wins the favour of all who saw her. Superficial judgments it's just externals, but she's doing well. And she wins the competition. It seems, and I think we're meant to kind of raise our eyebrows slightly, that she spends a night with the king. And so verse 17, the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favour and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. More food and more partying because Esther wins. Again, I take it you've got questions. Ought we be like Esther? Is she an example for us? Did she cross the line? Is she unwise? Was she as some have put it, was she a heroine or was she a harlot? It's pretty stark, isn't it? What are we meant to take away from the book? What's Esther about? Quite striking. As often in the Old Testament, when we get these, these narratives, these stories, they seem to make no comments, they seem to make no real judgments or anything. It's just a narrative account and we see God at work. In, through, despite his people. We see, as we've been thinking about this morning, his faithfulness. Perhaps even despite our unfaithfulness. I don't think the story focuses in on the morality of the situation, though, of course, we would be a people who knew our law very well, who knew what God expected and what God demanded. We'll come to more of that in a bit. Just for now, notice that she becomes queen, and, and we are in on this secret. It is the classic, perfect story arc. From rags to riches, from slavery to freedom, from orphan to royalty, from nobody to somebody. And we know who she is. But for now, her true identity is kept quiet. It's secret. And then the story unfolds a bit further. Mordecai, her cousin, happens upon some more secret information. I'm going to read to us from verse 19 to 23, as we see the final section, which is the plot. So when the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, but Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do. For she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions, as she had done when he was bringing her up. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Thana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. All this was recorded in the Book of the Annals in the presence of the king. Another secret. Mordecai then shares his information about the planned coup. And the empire then is in his debt, And in a normal course of events, Mordecai would be rewarded. Actually, he would be gifted. His name is recorded by Xerxes there, end of verse 23, end of the chapter. Persian kings apparently were renowned for careful chronicling. They would write stuff down. Those who had helped them, of keeping their friends close, of of rewarding those who had been good to them. But strangely, for now, there's no reward that is forthcoming. Mordecai's name is written down. But nothing happens yet. Because with all the best little stories, these incidental, seemingly insignificant details are left for now, but will be picked up and woven into the narrative later, in later weeks. And God's sovereignty, we'll see as the weeks unfold, this is a really vital little thing. Not just Mordecai hearing about the coup. but actually that he is in his debt. God is, God is silently sovereign, working through the little things in life. But okay then, what are we to make of Esther? What do we do with her example? What do we do with her as an, an, an individual who's so important in God's plans and purposes? And I'll just pull back a bit. It's striking to me initially that much of the book of Esther and perhaps chapter 2 in particular is to do with the outworking of disobedience and sin. Our sin has a way of affecting others. So the very fact that the people of God were in exile in the first place was because they didn't want to listen to his words, to his good word. Just like Adam and Eve, he wanted to not have God over them. So the people of God in the land did not want him over them. And so went without and were removed from the land. And I take it the fact that Mordecai and Esther are still in exile, despite people having previously returned in waves and waves and waves. It's, It's not explicit, but I take it probably that is due to compromise. Where would you rather go? Would you rather go hundreds of miles home to rebuild the cities of your ancestors that you've never lived in, or stay in Persia? Comfortable life. Compromised, perhaps, but comfortable. I think you get a glimpse of that in Mordecai and Esther's attitude and actions, I think. They want to keep their background and their identity quiet. They don't want to be straightforward or clear or honest about them being Jews. See, sins of past generations having present implications. So just initially, let that be a warning to us. It's interesting, isn't it? The things that we do, the stuff where we compromise acts like dominoes and goes forward into the future. Consequences and outworking of, of our, in our lives, but in the lives of people to come as well. We're, we're, we're a joined up people with joined up lives. Stuff that we get wrong impacts others. It's never just about us and God. There's a very powerful example of this um, mentioned this year at a, at a conference called Word Alive that I know a few of us went to and um, enjoyed. It was from the pastor, author, theologian Don Carson, um, just speaking again of, of how lives are integrated and how sin has implications for others. And he was talking, and I wonder if it's appropriate for this chapter particularly, he was talking about pornography. He said it's not just about a person and an image. There are implications in how you think, how you treat and relate to members of the opposite sex. I've known a number of people who have been hugely damaged over the years by something that started very small and seemed very private but then grew and had a huge impact. and continues to have an impact on their, their ability or inability to foster healthy relationships with people. Sin seems to have a way of spreading and cascading and implications for others. And we think it promises us freedom and life and joy, but we end up enslaved and suffering and death. The people of God wanted to live without God. And their wish was granted. And they were removed from the land and there were implications for years to come. But what about an Esther and That's the big question. Is she an example for us? I've already said that there are no, as far as I can see, ethical judgments in the text, although we are a people who would, who would know the Old Testament law. It's a question that divides people. I think it's interesting that in the Hebrew canon, Esther is placed right next to Daniel. If you know Daniel, you'll know there are lines carefully drawn. Lines that are not crossed. Daniel and his friends are part of the culture, but there are things that they won't do. There are things that they say no to. Often in a sermon series on Daniel, you'll get a sort of dare to be a Daniel tagline or something. I don't know if we would have a dare to be an Esther. I'm just not sure. At least not here. It's much messier. It's much more complicated. I think Esther is not chosen because she is morally upright, and so I wonder if she is overly assimilated, overly Persian. And we say, does she have a choice? I think she does have a choice, in the same way that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego had choices. In a number of places they would rather face death than compromise. I wonder if Esther is just a little bit too much in the world and of the world. But here's the thing. is not meant to be the example we don't look at Esther and we marvel at her obedience and courage and her amazing plan we we look at our God who is extraordinary and he works through the mess of our lives and the messiness of sin and the mess of the world and we see a God who is working it's not about Esther The great news is we have a God who is awesome and able and powerful. A God who uses morally suspect people, unfinished people, people who get things wrong, people with mixed motives, people with checkered histories, people with skeletons, people who muck up again and again and again and again. And a God who actually brings about his plans and his purposes despite in and through those people. And it's not just a theory. Sometimes we can kind of tick that box and think, yeah, I believe that. But when life is horrid, we forget it. Now, it doesn't mean that sin is right. It doesn't mean that sin is good. But it does mean that God is not waiting for you to be perfect before he can use you. Before you can be a part of his plan. It does mean that now he can use someone like you with your quirks and your foibles and your issues and your doubts. We don't need to be perfect. We don't need to be the hero. Because we have one who is. We have Christ. He is the perfect example. He is the perfectly obedient one. He is the one who lived the perfect life who died in the place of imperfect people so he takes and uses us someone like you with your actions motivations intentions and he brings them into his glorious plans and purposes to bring all things together under christ look at the cross look the cross you see a sovereign God who is able to bring about his purposes, an incredible eternal fruit (coughs) in the midst of horrible sin. This isn't just a theory. Look back at the hard times in your life. Perhaps frustrations now, or this this last week, this last day, this last morning, even the argument on the way to church. Perhaps just the frustrations of of what life is like for you. He works in, through, and despite that, in the mess of everyday lives, using messy people like Esther, messy people like me, and you, to take history where he plans for it to go, to bring all things together under Christ. The Lord is at work. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for what we've been thinking about this morning, of your faithfulness. Thank you that you are a faithful God, even amidst an unfaithful people, a people like us, people who are not perfect. Thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he lived the perfect life. Thank you that, in a sense, we don't have to be perfect to be useful because he is. And Lord, please help us to to shift this from being simply an idea to being reality in our lives. Particularly pray for any here this morning who are struggling, for whom life is hard. Perhaps people with doubts or inadequacies or just suffering. Pray that you might draw near to them, to us. Pray that we would know you're the kind of God who uses people like that in his glorious plan for this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.